in many other areas in order to get and keep wealth. That's the warning there. That if you love money over the things that you're supposed to love, then in order to get money and keep money, to get wealth and to maintain wealth, you will do things that are sinful. And that's the warning there. It doesn't say that, that enjoying money is bad. It doesn't say that having money is bad. It doesn't say even that... Uh, well, it, it says that the love of money is what is bad. So money is not the root of evil. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. So it's not that money in and of itself is bad. It's our attitude towards it. And you know that. He gives another warning about wealth in James. Read it along with me there. It says, Now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. But there corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire you have hoarded wealth in the last days saving is wise hoarding is evil that's what god makes clear in this passage and in many places in scripture saving is wise hoarding is evil really the only difference between those two things is the is the motivation and the attitude behind them you save for things that are unforeseen. You save to help people that you love. You save because the rainy day comes and you're going to need to do something and God says that that is wise. But hoarding is having it for the sake of having it. And God reminds us again that that is not smart. He says in these, this, this uh, passage here that money is temporary. So placing your faith in it or, or thinking it's what's going to make everything better is, is, is foolish because it's a very temporary thing where righteousness is eternal last warning on wealth we could go through a lot but just a few mark 10 23 jesus looked around and said to his disciples how hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of god we could spend probably a month just diving into all the truths that are in that passage of scripture but basically having your worldly needs uh having your worldly physical needs seemingly all taken care of can allow you to, blank, to believe excuse me, that you don't need God. That's the warning there. When all of your physical worldly needs are taken care of, or they seem to be taken care of, because God tells us later that it can all be gone like that. But when it seems like your physical needs are taken care of, it's very easy to forget about God and how important He is in your life. So many warnings about becoming wealthy and maintaining wealth by the wrong means and for the wrong reasons. But money in and of itself is not wrong and it's not bad. Money is a tool. Money can be used for a lot of good things. So it's about us, not about the money itself. So when you talk about wealth, it's easy for us to dismiss that, I think, when we read that in Scripture. So just to put a couple things in, in perspective, I ask the question, am I rich? Are you rich? Are we rich? Take a look at this uh, graphic here. Household income percentiles, 2018 and 2019. The blue is 2019. The gold is 2018. This is the percentiles of where you would fall in America based on your household, not individual, your household income. Median income in 2019, $63,000 for a household in America. Median means half of the people in America make more than that, half of the people in America make less than that. So it's the median. It's, it's kind of the middle. So if you make more than that, you're already in the top half of just America, not to mention uh, the world. 39,162,447 households, or 30.4% of households, make $100,000 or more in the United States. 
That's a lot. 250000 If you, as a household, make $250,000 or more as a household, you're in the top 5% of households in the United States of America. And then the bottom down here is the top, uh, sorry, is the uh, bottom 10%. Okay, so the bottom 10 percentile of households in America make $14,000. Okay, $14,000 is the bottom 10% in America. Now, that's a big difference, right? So if you're in the bottom 10% in America, you, you might be looking at the top 5% and you might say, they're rich, I'm not. But as usual with anything, it all depends on perspective because the average worldly income is about $2,000. The average worldly income is about $2,000. So the bottom 10% of America average at 14,000 is seven times more wealthier, more wealthy than the average person out in the world. So before we get off on the, well, they're rich and need to be given, and I'm not, so it's not as big a deal for me, man, we are just, we need to recheck the way we look at money, and we also need to be very thankful that we live where we live. There's about $315 trillion out there right now. America owns about $110 trillion of that 315 trillion. We own about a third of the world's wealth with not near that much of the population. So it's a great place to live. We should be thankful for it. Not to chase that rabbit. That's not what we're talking about today. So what about the Old Testament? Okay. We, we know that there's a lot of talk about giving, things like that in the Old Testament. What does the Old Testament law, God's law, say about giving? What do these say about giving? Who should give? How much should we give? Where should we give? Why should we give? We think we know that. I guarantee you, you probably have a word or a percentage in mind right now of what you think God says about giving. And you're probably partially right, but I bet, I bet almost all of us, if not all of us, will probably learn something this morning when it comes to the Old Testament law and to giving. So, first, what does the Old Testament law say about, say about giving? Leviticus 27.30, there's a first tithe. Notice the word first being operative. To support the Levites and the priests. So the first tithe, it's mentioned in Leviticus 27 and then I've mentioned again in Numbers 18. What is this for? Well, the Levites were supposed to take care, basically, of the ministry of Israel. Okay, It's not exactly the same as the church is now, but it's similar. It's, it's kind of like if you combine the church and the government all together which we don't do in this country, and I'm thankful for that. But that's kind of what it's for. So that first 10% that all Israel was supposed to give was to take care of the Levite tribe. Why? Because the Levite tribe was supposed to be dedicated to taking care of the things of God. And they got no allotment, no land, no inheritance. In other words, the tribe that God pulled out of the 12 and said, you are going to be the one that take care of all the stuff that you, you spiritually minister to my people, you're going to be solely dependent upon me to make a living, to to survive. And it's only going to happen if the people of Israel give that 10% properly to you as the Levite clan. Pretty scary thing for the Levite thing. Also a huge honor, also a huge responsibility on them. And then the Levites were to give a tenth of that tenth. So the Levites were to give 10% of what they had been given to the priests which were like the actual preacher or pastor. 
So think of it as like um, giving 10% to the church so that the deacons can focus solely on the church, and then the deacons would take that 10% and give another 10% so that the pastor would have an income also. That would be the most modern equivalent to what it was like then. It's not an exact comparison, but it's kind of similar, pretty similar. So that was the first tithe. Then there's a second tithe in Deuteronomy 14. Now, before we go too far here, I do want you to understand that there is not 100% consensus on even what these tithes mean. Some people think the mentioning of the tithe again in Deuteronomy 14 is the same tithe as the ones before, but it talks about doing different things with it. So it seems like there's a second tithe. And I know that Jewish people still view it that way. They still view it as a second tithe. So there's a second tithe, I think, and many scholars think, mentioned in Deuteronomy 14. This tithe was to support festivals and celebrations. So you can see right off the top, there's already a mandatory percentage giving to the people of Israel of 20%, not 10%. There's two tithes already thrown in there for the people of Israel. What was, that, what was the purpose of that second tithe? It was really so there could be big family celebrations in the local areas of the places of Israel. Once they got into the promised land, they were to give that second tithe and then basically enjoy that second tithe together. And then every third and sixth year of a seven-year rotation, because everything worked on a seven-year rotation in ancient Israel, that second tithe was to go specifically to widows, orphans, and the poor. Widows, orphans, and the poor. So first, second, fourth, and fifth year of the seven-year rotation, it's for a big celebration for everybody. Third and sixth year of the seven-year rotation, so every third year in that rotation, that second tithe only went to widows, orphans, and the poor. Widows, orphans, and the poor. The people that couldn't be provided for otherwise. So there's a 20% minimum giving right off the bat when you look at Old Testament law. But there's more than that. You got the first and you got the second tithes. Plus, you also have the first fruits offering, which is the best of the year's harvest. So you go through your 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 grain and your, and your wine and your oil, all those things, and the best of those things, you also give basically to the church or to the, to the church and government uh, as far as Israel is concerned. And then there was also a free will offering. Now, this is the first one that was required but not required. So it's a, it's a voluntary contribution. It's above and beyond the tithes and the first fruit offerings, but it is voluntary. The, the, the range... There's a range that was expected to give, but there was a range depending on how good your crops were. It was the best of the best. It was not the leftovers, which when you're talking about the first fruits, that's probably, it doesn't really say in Scripture, but if you look at Scripture as a whole, that's probably where Cain got in trouble with God. Was he, it's insinuated and believed in the extra-biblical text of the, of the Jewish, uh, of the Talmudic uh, books, that Cain basically enjoyed what he had and then gave what was left over to God on the first fruit offerings. And Abel gave the first and the best of what he had to God. And that was not what was given. It was the motivation and the attitude and the heart behind what was given. So the free will offering was voluntary, but it was definitely expected. Okay, So for, for all of us, and I know I grew up this way, all of us that grew up thinking that God demanded 10% from his people is only partially correct. He actually demanded 
significantly more than that. And then you've got the sacrifices on top of that. And then you've got more voluntary offerings on top of that. So the thought of that it has to be 10% and that 10% is all God requires of us, even in the Old Testament, is not really, it's not really there when you actually dig into it and look at it. So why do these tithes, what, excuse me, what do these tithes and offerings do? What do they do? Well, there's three things I think that they, that they do. There's more than that, but there's definitely three things. Teaching people to put God first. Why? Because if you put money first, things aren't going to go very well for you and for all those around you. So he's teaching people to put him first. He's providing for God's people. He's providing for the Levites and the priests, but he's also providing for the less fortunate. He's providing for the widows and the orphans and the poor. You see, it's very simple when, we, when you think about it. Some people are given more. Some people have more intelligence. Some people are born into more structured and happy, healthy families. Some people uh, have a stronger back. Back in that day, that made a big difference. There's a lot of things that were given that we had nothing to do with. They, they're, they're just given. You just have them. And so those that don't have that much to start with, it's very difficult for them to have much as they get later on in life. In other words, there's a natural hierarchy that builds with human beings because there's different abilities and different, different blessings that are given to all of us. But God doesn't want that hierarchy to continue to become a further, further, higher, higher point where there's more people at the bottom with less and fewer people at the top with more. That's why he structured it so that they would get a lop taken off the top and given down to the bottom. He's trying to, God is trying to teach people to equalize their blessings, to equalize what they're giving, to take care of those and to help those that couldn't otherwise do that. Why? Because you were given a blessing. It's grace that you were able to get the blessings that you have, so we should show grace to each other in the same way to help out those that are less fortunate. And the third thing is to celebrate God's blessings. The second tithe was, was, it was just a big party. It's like a ginormous potluck is a way to think of it. And so it's, God says, take that, but, but enjoy it together. And then take it, and then only let those less fortunate enjoy it every third and sixth year. So those are some reasons for giving, for tithing in the Old Testament, in the law of God. Then you get into giving as an opportunity to cheerfully acknowledge the giver of all gifts. I love this passage in, in uh, Exodus 36, 6 through 7. This is how awesome it is when God's people cheerfully give things that can happen. Okay, So this is when it was time for the people of Israel to build the first tabernacle when they were wander, in the wanderings, when they were in the desert for 40 years. It's time to build the place where God is going to dwell. Okay, Today we would say build a church building. Not the same thing, but, but the only thing we have equivalent. Exodus 36, 6-7. After Moses gave an order, they sent a proclamation throughout the camp, let no man or woman make anything else as an offering for the sanctuary. So the people stopped. The materials were sufficient for them to do all the work. There was more than enough. So Moses has asked the people of Israel to give all these physical things so they can build the tabernacle of God. And the people were so cheerful and overabundant in their giving that they were getting more than they needed. And Moses had to tell them, excuse me, stop. Like, we don't have, that's, we don't, that's more than we need. We don't even have enough to, places to put all that stuff, right? What a blessing. What a blessing for the people of God to do that. Now, 
Remember, they're very shortly removed from leaving Egypt. And what did God cause the people of Egypt to do when they left? Give them a whole bunch of stuff, right? They hadn't earned most of that stuff. <laughs> most of that stuff was a ginormous blessing from God. All the physical things, the gold, the silver, the jewelry, uh, the, you know, the, the cedar, all the stuff. The people of Egypt just said, look, we're giving it to you because for some reason something's making us do it and we're scared to death. Please get out of here. Here's all of our stuff. Leave us alone. And now God says, now that I've given you all that stuff, let's, let's see where your heart is. Will you give it back to me to build my tabernacle? What a blessing. What a blessing it is when the people of God cheerfully give. In the Old Testament, the cheerful giver was celebrated and held high. Period. The cheerful giver was the ideal and the standard. The way it should be. Just the way it was. So what about the New Testament? Because you and I know that we're not bound to the law any longer. Jesus fulfilled that law. So all those things we don't do anymore. But does that principle still exist in the New Testament? We're going to look at the passage that we were looking at today. 1 Corinthians 16. This is Paul responding to a question from the Corinthians about giving. You'll catch that in the very first couple of words. There, and the thing is, the reason why they're asking about this, the, the context of what's taking place is there's a bad famine in Jerusalem, and the churches that had been planted were wanting to help out the people that were suffering, the Christians that were suffering in Jerusalem, because when the famine came back then, that was bad, because you didn't have food, uh, and things got bad in a hurry. So there's been a famine, and they're wanting to know, how do we give, what are we supposed to do, what, what's the deal, Paul? So Paul's writing them a letter back, to explain many things, but in this part, that's what he's explaining. He says there, now about the collection of the saints, for the saints. Now about the collection for the saints. That's how you know he's responding to something they have said. Now about. He's saying, you asked me about this, now I'm going to answer it for you. Now about the collection for the saints, you should do the same as I instructed the Galatian church. It wasn't just them, it was also the churches in Galatia. On the first day of the week, each of you is to set aside, set something aside and save in keeping with how he prospers so that no collections will need to be made when I come. When I arrive, I will send with, the, send with letters those you recommend to carry your gracious gift to, the, to Jerusalem. If it is suitable for me to go as well, they can travel with me. Okay, so what do we get out of that? First, giving was part of gathering. It was part of worship. There in verse 2, what does he say? On the first day of the week, right? The, the, we know that the New Testament church started meeting on the first day of the week because that's when Jesus was resurrected. That's when they gathered. That's when they studied. That's when they prayed. And now Paul is also telling them that's also when they should give. So giving was part of the gathering and part of worship. Now understand that they could only give to the church when they gathered. So that doesn't mean that your offering only counts if you do it when you come in here on Sunday mornings. God, thankfully, is not that legalistic. We try to get that legalistic for some strange reason. But that's not the way God, God sees it. So he tells them to do it when they meet together. But we have the ability to meet together any way we want nowadays. So to me, and I think this is common sense, but if somebody opens their phone and goes to fbcdan.com and gives on a Tuesday, it's no less precious to God than writing a check and giving on Sunday morning or giving online on Sunday mornings. It doesn't matter when. That's not the point. The point is that there, it should be 
the point of it being mentioned the first of the week is it should be part of your worship. Make sure it is part of your worship. That's what he's saying. It's an act of worship to give. Second thing in that, those four verses, giving was for every individual and proportionate to the level of prosperity. Look back at verse 2. Each of you is to set something aside and save in keeping with how he prospers. Each of you is to do this, and you should do it according to how much you've been blessed, how much you have prospered. So it's proportionate to the level of prosperity. In other words, there's not a set dollar amount that makes you a good Christian, because that wouldn't make sense. Because if this family makes a kajillion dollars, and this family doesn't make a kajillion dollars, and it was $1,000 you had to give every time we got together in order to be a good Christian, well, that wouldn't make sense. That wouldn't be righteous, and God is righteous, and it wouldn't be wise, and God is all wise. So it doesn't make sense for that to happen, but we're just hitting on it real quick anyway. So giving is for every individual and proportionate to the level of prosperity. And then the third thing is funds were to be handled with integrity. Funds were to be handled with integrity. Look at verse 3 there. Paul says, when I arrive, I will send with letters those you recommend to carry your gracious gift to Jerusalem. Now, understand this gift was not to Paul. He was not getting this gift. It was for, to be transported to Jerusalem for the Christians suffering there because of the famine. But he, he, he goes to great lengths to, to say, look, I'm not carrying the offering. You're not taking up these gifts, giving them to me, and me be solely responsible for getting them to Jerusalem. That ain't happening. That's what Paul's saying when I translate it to the way I would say it. Not happening. You pick out the people, the people you trust, and will make letters of certification saying these are the people that were picked out. This is how much was given. This is why it's being given and where it's going. And if it's okay, if it matches up with our timing and everything and you're fine with it, I will travel with them. But they're carrying the money. They're responsible for the money. He goes to great lengths to make sure that the money is handled with integrity. So that reminds me of things that we do. We, we have procedures to protect and guard the financial integrity of this church. A couple examples. When the money is counted every week, it's never counted by one person. It's counted by usually the secretary and a non-staff member. Always. Now, most of you know who that person is. 99 million times out of 10. It's Wayman that helps count that every week. But it's, why do we do that? Because we don't trust the secretary? No, of course not. It has nothing to do with that. It's to guard the integrity of the financial situation of the church. Same thing with distributions. Checks for this church have to be signed by two people, usually by the secretary and one other person that is designated by the church to have that authority. So Paul says, we're going to go to great lengths to show that we're on the up and up here, and we as the church do the same thing, and the books in this church are open and always open for anyone to look through them because um, we're trying to do everything we can to maintain integrity when it comes to giving. So, in the New Testament, how much? As much as possible, according to how much you prosper. Why? It's an act of worship. Who? Every single follower of Jesus that has income. Period. Every single person. Why? Why does all that matter? 
2 Corinthians 9, 6 through 7. Remember this, the person who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and the person who sows generously will also reap generously. Each person should do as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or out of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. God likes generosity. He rewards generosity. He doesn't like stinginess. doesn't reward stinginess. He is happy to have people that follow him that are cheerful givers according to what is in their heart that they can give cheerfully not a set amount not even a set percentage as far as that goes now I I know that's strange to hear come from a pulpit or a stage from a church that I'm not I'm saying that you don't have to give 10 percent I think there's a great biblical example of that being the bottom the starting place for giving the first tithe but there's nowhere in the New Testament, there's nowhere where Jesus says, you should, you have to, you must give a tithe. He does commend the Pharisees for giving a tithe, but then he, then he chastises them for only caring about that and not caring about the things that matter more to God, like mercy and faith and justice and love. Two times Jesus mentions the tithe, and that's what it's in the context of. So, that's why. So what happens when we do that? That's all the, the background and the, and, the, and the, you know, that's what the New Testament, the Old Testament, that's what it says about giving. But what happens when we actually give with a cheerful heart? Because I think, I think that matters. I don't think God would have asked us to do this if it was just because. I don't think he does that. So what happens when we give? To give or not to give? That is the question. It changes our heart. Giving builds up the church, and it guarantees God will be glorified. That's the results of giving with a cheerful heart. To you, the church, the world, that is what happens. We can look at Scripture and back all those things up. It changes our heart. Matthew 6, 21. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So what you value, and that, and that translates out to more than just money, what you value is a representation of what's inside you. What you value, what you think is important, is where your heart is. And we know that. We have sayings that match that, right? Uh, Put your money where your mouth is. You ever said that to somebody? Why do we say that? Because we know that talk is cheap, but when you start putting dollars and cents behind it, it starts mattering all of a sudden, right? Put your money where your mouth is. That, if somebody's willing to do that, they probably mean what they're saying. So, where the treasure is, there your heart will be also. So it changes your heart. Now think about that. That's a two-sided thing for the good and for the bad, depending on where your treasure is, your generosity level. It could change your heart for the worst. It builds up the church. Second Corinthians nineteen twelve, the first part, A, and 14. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints. Got that? So he's talking about giving again in Second Corinthians. He says this Service, this ministry of service, this giving is, is not only for the needs of the saints, which means it is also for the needs of the saints. And then he says, and they will have deep affection for you in their prayers and on your behalf because of the surpassing grace or gift or giving, same charis, like charity, same Greek word of God in you. It builds up the church. When we give, it builds up the church. Physically, yes. The church building, it gives resources and things like that, but also the individual people of the church. We are the church. It builds us up also. Why? 
because people will pray for you. People will be thankful for you. It changes things. It changes our heart. Therefore, it builds up the church. Third thing, guarantees God will be glorified. 2 Corinthians 9, 13. All in the same context of giving here in 2 Corinthians from Paul to the Corinthians again. They will glorify God for your obedience to the confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with others through the proof provided by this service. Again, talking about putting your money where your mouth is, but he says, they will glorify God for your obedience. When Christians give with cheerful hearts, God is glorified. Why? Because if you're willing to put your money where your mouth is, then you probably mean what you're saying. You probably believe what you say you believe. More than likely, that's the case. When someone who is not a follower of Jesus sees a general, generous giver that follows Jesus, how do you think they view God? Probably puts God in a good light. Even the non-follower of Jesus sees generosity from a Christian and says, man, there must be something good about that God they follow. There must be something good about that because it's just natural. It just makes sense to us. So I'll finish with this and we're done. Imagine with me two different scenarios. Whether or not we're supposed to give is not a question. We are supposed to give. There's no doubt about that. But imagine with me two different scenarios. Because as Zach and I had many different conversations this summer, I talked to him about when it comes to logic. If you take something that's supposed to be logic and you drive it off a cliff, in other words, take it as far as you can possibly take it, and if it still holds up, then it's probably true. It probably makes sense. It's probably a good thing. Okay, so let's take the logic of giving and let's drive it off the cliff both ways. What if... Every single follower of Jesus, everywhere around the world, cheerfully, proportionately, happily gave on a regular basis to build up the church, to glorify God, to help those that are less fortunate. What if all of us did that on a regular basis, always, no matter what? What's going to happen to God's kingdom if that happens? Is it going to expand? Or contract? Are there going to be more people glorifying God or less? Are you individually going to be better off or worse off? I think the answers to those questions are obvious. Again, drive it off the cliff this way. What if every follower of Jesus said, well, Jesus didn't say we had to, so we don't have to. And no Christians anywhere in the world ever gave. What would happen to the church? What would happen to God's kingdom? Would God be glorified? Would people be added? Would people want to follow Jesus? What would happen to you individually and me individually if we never gave? What would happen to our heart? We have words for people like that. Stingy. Crotchety. The kind of people that you don't want to spend your time around. It's not the only reason that happens, but it's definitely a factor in getting a dark, nasty, bitter heart a factor in that is whether or not we're generous so again i'm thankful that we got to talk about that this morning when things are fine things are good so it doesn't sound like i'm doing this so you'll give more so it benefits me or the building or whatever else that's not the point the point is when god tells us to do something it's for two reasons i believe all things he tells us to do is for two reasons one it's to his glorification and two it's to our benefit. It makes things better for us. So if God tells us that we should give, 
then we should give. And those two things will be the result of being a generous, cheerful giver. I am very certain of that fact. Again, talk about your heart. First thing that has to happen for your heart to change is you have to accept Jesus as your Savior. You've got to get saved. He's got to have the Holy, God's got to send the Holy Spirit to change you. You've got to die to your old self and become new with the Holy Spirit to begin the process of your heart changing. And then giving can change your heart even more to who God wants you to be. So if you're here this morning and you've never done that, please, in the next couple songs we sing, please come grab me by the shoulder and let's handle that. Uh, but if you are here this morning, let's spend the next couple of minutes as we sing these last two songs thanking God for the, all the wisdom that he gives us in his book, praying to God, worshiping God. If you want to give to God this morning, great. If you already have because you mailed in or whatever else, it counts just the same. God's just as thrilled. And it will help you just the same. But every time you give, don't let it become just something you do because you think you have to do it. Every single time you give, whether it's a dollar or a million dollars, give as an act of worship. Be reminded of the fact that God wants you to do it, that good will come from it, and that God will bless you internally every single time that we approach giving like that. God, I thank you for this day. I thank you for your truths. I thank you for Jesus. I thank you for this time of worship that we will have to finish up the service. I thank you that you are in control, that you know all things, that you love us, that you're here for us. And God, I thank you for a generous church. And may you stir up our hearts to look for ways to even become more generous, God, because you don't bless us to increase our standard of living. You bless us to increase our standard of giving. And we thank you for that this morning. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please stand.